Chapter 5 of Energy and Vibration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lauren McCullough. Nature's Miracles, Volume 2 Energy and Vibration by Alicia Gray. Chapter 5 Energy Its Relation to Life. In the foregoing chapters, we have discussed the subject of energy wholly in its relation to inanimate matter. When we pass from the inanimate to the animate, a new factor is introduced that bears some sort of relation to physical energy. This new factor we call life. It is beyond the power of the human intellect to dissociate it from the living organisms or to solve the mystery in which it is shrouded. All we know is that there are certain facts and phenomena connected with all living organisms, whether vegetable or animal, that we do not find associated with inanimate matter in any of its combinations. In a certain sense, a man is a highly organized machine. To obtain the energy with which to drive a steam engine, we only need to release that which is stored up in wood or coal. The machinery which the engine drives will do the kind of work and only the kind of work for which it has been designed. But it will not do even this work except under the direction of an intelligent being. The forces of nature left to themselves would never construct a steam engine and operate it to perform some special work. Behind these forces is an intelligence that directs them at will to perform a certain kind of work in a certain way. No man has ever been able, from a knowledge of the laws of physics and chemistry, to so combine matter and energy that it will produce a self-acting machine. If we possess an acorn, we can so environ it as that it will produce an oak, but the acorn itself possesses the key to the situation. The chemist can analyze the acorn and tell us what are its chemical constituents, but he never has been able, and perhaps never will be able, to make an acorn that can be planted in the earth and thereby produce an oak. The life principle, that mysterious something which is a necessity to all growth, animal or vegetable, eludes the physicist at this point. It says to him, Thus far shalt thou go. The physical basis of all life, animal and vegetable, is called protoplasm. It is a glutinous substance resembling the white of an egg. This protoplasm is the substance out of which are developed the cells and tissues of all living beings, whether vegetable or animal, including man. Chemically considered, it consists of carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen. The molecules are extremely unstable and are held in position by this mysterious vital spark that eludes the chemist. Take away this vital energy and decomposition immediately ensues. Man is a highly organized machine, but he is more. The energy that he expends in doing various kinds of work is derived from the food that he eats. There is combustion going on in the human system, the same as under a steam boiler, but less rapid in its action. It does more, however, than merely produce heat that may be transmuted into mechanical energy. A part of the energy is used in carrying the various elements contained in the food into the tissues to build them up and repair the waste that is constantly going on, and a part is consumed in keeping up the heat of the body. But it will be perceived that the likeness between a man and the ordinary machine is limited. The machine requires the constant attention of an intelligent being to gather up the fuel that supplies it with energy, and after the energy is developed, to direct it into various channels of work for which the machine has been constructed. Man gathers his own food and directs the energy of his own mechanism in whatever direction he wills. He is not only the machine, but he is the engineer as well. He cannot, however, live and grow on the same food that the plant does, which draws its sustenance from inorganic matter, rocks and soils, 
not yet organized into living tissue. In the vegetable world there are three elements necessary for the operation of growth, and these three are, first, protoplasm, then chlorophyll, which is the green substance of the leaf, and finally, the sunbeam. The protoplasm has received its vital energy from a previous existence. There must be this life germ, which is the basis of vegetable as well as animal life and growth. For instance, let us plant an acorn in the ground and watch its development. In its first stages, it is shut out from the light, from which in, after life, it obtains its energy. But the previous life has provided for this germinating period that is carried on in the dark by storing up a mass of organic material, which acts as food for the germ until it is reached above the surface and sent forth leaves. The energy necessary for starting the germ is set free when this mass of material that surrounds the germ of the acorn is decomposed. When the leaves put forth, the work of building up the oak is carried on largely through them. The energy of the sunbeam, in connection with the leaf directed by the vital energy inherited through the living germ that came from another life, is able to decompose carbon dioxide in water, storing the carbon and hydrogen while it throws back the oxygen into the air. And thus it is that this vital spark directs the power of the sunbeam to accomplish the end of its own destiny, which is predetermined by heredity. When we analyze the seeds of different kinds of vegetable growth, chemically, it would be difficult to determine one from the other by any experimental tests we may apply to them. However, there resides in each germ of a different species a potency that directs its growth so that the one will build up an oak, another a maple, and still another a cornstalk. All of them may be environed exactly alike, planted in the same soil, and warmed by the same sunshine, and yet how different the results, when each is matured after its kind. We have seen that the food of plants is taken from the mineral kingdom. Man's food, however, is derived from the vegetable or the organic world. He cannot, like the plant, draw his food directly from inorganic substances but it must have been selected and given an organized structure under the direction of a vitality that has been handed down through an untold lapse of time from one life to another. Whence the origin of this vitality, physical science does not tell. Evolution has failed to solve the problem, as the closest investigation has shown that there is no such thing as spontaneous generation, something out of nothing, but that all life comes from another life. To attempt to produce something that does not inhere in inanimate matter, that is, to derive life from no life, will be as futile as the attempt to produce a machine that will perpetually propel itself without the aid of any power extraneous to its own. Compared with mineral compounds, organized structures are chemically unstable. The vegetable kingdom is more unstable than the mineral in its structure, while the animal kingdom is still more unstable than that of the vegetable. And those parts of the animal that are susceptible of the most delicate and discriminating work are the most unstable structures of them all. The moment the life principle is taken away, the structure begins to break down. The highest forms of life are found associated with the most delicate machinery, machinery that responds to the most delicate directive touch. And yet, that directive touch is beyond the reach of scientific analysis. A mine may be laid in a harbor and so arranged, with the reference to collateral appliances, that the most delicate touch of a child's finger will be sufficient to release enough energy to destroy, in the twinkling of an eye, the largest battleship that ever plowed the ocean. 
And yet that slightest touch is just as necessary as though it required the weight of a ton to produce the effect. By no possible refinement of machinery could we get along without this directive energy, behind which somewhere lies an intelligence that determines the when and the how a thing shall be done. It does not detract from, but rather adds to, the dignity of this intelligence to say that he carries on all these wonderful operations through the medium of natural law. Law that is inflexible and that pervades not only the physical kingdom, but the kingdom of mind and soul as well. For whatever is, in fact, is natural. The lesson to be learned by a study of the laws of energy, so far as it is related to life, is that energy as it is related to inanimate matter can never account for all the phenomena exhibited in life and growth. Here, at length, we come to the borderland. We look over from the realm of the physical into the realm of the spiritual and intellectual. And there we see a train of facts that are just as real as any fact in the world of material. Vice, virtue, love, hate, mind, intelligence, religion. These are facts that the student of nature can no more ignore than he can the facts of heat, light, or electricity. We are bound to recognize these facts, although we may not be able to explain them. They cannot be explained from a purely physical standpoint. But before the philosopher can reconcile them with the facts of the natural world, he must know and recognize them. There is no correct thinking without a mutual recognition of the facts in both realms, by both the physicist and philosopher. From the foregoing, three facts are made to stand out in bold relief, namely matter, energy, intelligence. The two former, as we have seen, are indestructible, and we are forced to the conclusion that the last named either antedated or was coexistent with the former. Moreover, since the first two obey and the third commands, matter and energy must take a subordinate position to intelligence. End of chapter 5. Recording by Lauren McCullough, www.laurenmccullough.com.